Hey, good morning, everybody. If uh, you could stand with us for worship. And uh, also, this would be a good time that if anybody is planning to watch online, make sure you text a friend, tell your family and friends that uh, they can tune in from the Apex website. And uh, thank you guys for being here and tuning in online. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, Lord, we come gather together to lift up your name, to call on our Savior, to fall on your grace. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, where we come, gather together, lift up your name, to call on our Savior, call on your grace. Hear the joyful sound of our offering, as your saints bow down, as your people sing, we will rise with
we have a video coming up next for us. My name is Victoria, and I'm here to share with you about my stone from the Stones Project. And um, this stone represents a lot of um, movement and things that have felt very hard for me to put into words um, from this season. And it represents um, a picture that the Lord had given me a while back, and it represents death and resurrection. Um, it represents mess and confusion. It represents how the Lord is the kindest of fathers um, and the most faithful of friends. But in short, it is a um, reminder of that picture like I was sharing that the Lord had given me. And um, in the picture, he and I were sitting in this dark cave, so I have black and I have just wrestled a lot through anxiety and depression in this time and really have been fearing that God is just so angry with me. He's frustrated with me. Um, why can't I just get over it? Um, but in that cave, as he and I were sitting and kind of took myself from that bird's eye lens into the picture, um, he and I um, were just sitting and enjoying each other's presence and he, he was content to be there with me in this hard space. And um, eventually I reached over, um, you know, touched his shoulder and we kind of teleported back to this just sweet space um, of light. And it was almost like I could smell light. And um, just knowing that he wasn't angered at me, he wasn't frustrated, um, he wanted to be there with me. And so I stood up and started taking off some masks that I had been wearing. And um, I was stripped back to little Victoria um, and I was glowing. And Jesus stood up and we started dancing. And it was this cool opportunity to see this forward lens of being a dancer in his presence. And Jesus truly being just the kindest um, person that we could ever process things with. And someone who understands our, um, our struggles and those places that we're in that we just don't know how to get out of. And, crying out and not having words. So my rock symbolizes um, death, confusion, resurrection, and life, um, and how because Jesus is with us and with me, um, beautiful things will happen. And he is proud to have this rock, you know, in the Father's house. And he is proud to have your rock in the Father's house. And, um, and knowing that it will continue to take different shapes and forms, um, but that it's beautiful to him. Love you guys. Good morning, Apex family. I wanted to let you know that my husband and I will be moving out of the area and to Florida due to his job. I wanna say thank you to Apex for being our home for the last 17 years. We've had so many wonderful memories having house church at our house, um, not only in Cedarville, but here in Beaver Creek. And we leave with hearts full of great memories. I also wanna say thank you so much, Apex, for the privilege of serving on staff for eight years and being the care ministry director. I have met many wonderful people and I have had the joy of seeing God transform lives in a powerful way. 
So I'm so excited about what God has done at Apex in people's lives and will continue to do there. So thank you, thank you. I also want to say thank you to all on staff who have been very dear friends of mine and we have grown close together. I will miss you each and every one every day and think of all of the many laughs we've had together. I just wanna leave you with one of my favorite quotes by T.S. Eliot. He says, what we call the beginning is often the end and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. So here's to new beginnings. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning, or I guess I should say it's good to see the top half of your faces. Uh, you know, it's funny, last week uh, I was talking to Jason Zastro in the hallway and he was wearing a mask and I told him a joke, but he didn't laugh. So I had to check with him. I said, like, Jason, are you smiling? And he nodded and said, yeah, yeah, I'm smiling. So I find myself, you know, I'll, I'll be coming up later to do the sermon, and I find myself at a little bit of a disadvantage because I'm not able to read your expressions. You know, so I'm not going to be able to tell if, like, what's landing and what you're tracking with. So if you could just do me a favor and just be more of, more of those nodders today, just to let me know that you're picking up what I'm putting down, that would just be, you know I'm mostly kidding. I'm just going to trust that you're smiling under those masks. So um, we have heard from our friend, our sister, our um, partner in ministry, Sue McCoy, who um, talked about her transition. And, um, you know, Sue and I um, have shared this connection because there was a time where she and I both lived in a small town called Cedarville. That's where I grew up and went to high school and all that, and her kids were a few years behind me. But as we were on staff together, we always shared that connection. And so everyone on staff loved Sue and we will miss her and Brad very much. So, Sue, if you're watching, we love you, and we'll see you around. Um, I think it was shared last week that we've recently made some upgrades to our live streaming capability. And, that's, we, and we felt that was necessary because even though we might, have, we might gather between two and 300 people here on the weekends, we have been consistently getting over a thousand views of our time of word and worship. And so we're pretty sure that's not from 200 people watching every sermon five times. We're just going to assume that that means our network is far more extensive than what we see on the weekends. So we thought it was necessary to upgrade our, our live streaming there. And if you do um, join us digitally, we would encourage you uh, to do that through our website. I mean, you can do it through Facebook Live, but we would like to direct you to the website because there you'll have the capability of interacting with us. There should be a button that says prayer. If you're in need of prayer, you can share that and let us know those needs. Uh, and also there's um, a response button where you can hit response and just let us know what God has been saying to you through the word and worship times. And that would, that's a way that we would love to engage with you and stay connected with you. And so we would encourage you to take advantage of that. I think Mike also shared last week that in terms of finances, in terms of our annual budget, we're about trending about 10% short. And we just want to offer that just for the sake of full disclosure, just to let you guys know where we are. There was a bit of an uptick in giving last week, which we are thankful for. And we do recognize that we are in much better shape 
than a lot of uh, the churches out there who are really struggling right now. So do continue to pray for Apex, pray for all the churches that are struggling, and let us rely on the Lord as our Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Uh, when I'll come up later uh, to preach the sermon, there will be a point where I invite Terry up to the stage who will read our passage for us. Terry was one of our form interns from this past year, and form is a seven-month intensive, life-changing discipleship opportunity, discipleship experience that focuses on spiritual formation, leadership development, and missional training. So if you would like to hear more about uh, the form experience, myself, Terry, and perhaps some other interns will be in the connecting room after the service. We would love to talk with you about that. So uh, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll continue to praise the Lord through song.
Finish. The end is written.
guys can have a seat. talk about Jesus with you guys and remember the Bible is for you ready to watch the skit Erin, it looks like you're going on an adventure. Where are you going? I am going on an adventure. I'm going to family camp. Family camp? What's that? So family camp is this time where people of all ages and seasons of life get to come together and learn about God's Word. They're not just going to be reading God's Word or listening to it, but they learn how to interact with God's Word through some special tools. Well, that sounds like fun. What exactly will you be doing? So at family camp, we're going to sing some songs, there'll be a couple skits, and then someone's going to get up and teach and walk them through the picture, the mirror, and the window. I've heard of the picture mirror window, but can you explain exactly what it's for? Absolutely. So the picture is like a glimpse of God. When you read a passage in the Bible, you can say, what is this telling me about God? And then with the mirror, when we look in the mirror, we see ourselves. So you can say, what is this passage telling me about myself? And lastly, we have the window. What is this passage telling me about the world around me and how I should interact with it? And at family camp, we're going to be going through Luke 19, which is the story of Zacchaeus. That's why I brought my plants. I know the passage talks about Zacchaeus climbing a tree, but I think that plant's going to be too small for him to climb up. Oh, no, no, it's not a prop. No one's going to climb up this plant. But you see how this plant is green and it's growing. But what's in this pot here? Um, nothing. Well, it sure looks like nothing. But deep down in here, I planted a seed. And guess what happened? Inside, that seed is changing and transforming, and pretty soon it's going to pop out of the dirt and turn into a plant just like this one. Okay, but I still don't understand what this has to do with Zacchaeus. Oh, yeah. Well, I kind of forgot that part. So in the passage, Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. He sees him up in the tree, and he says, hey, come down. I want to come to your house. And the passage says that Zacchaeus received him joyfully. And so at that point, Zacchaeus began to change and to transform into a new person. It said that he started doing all these things that he would have never had done before. Just like when we receive Jesus, our hearts become changed. We receive Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes in us and changes and transforms us to be more like him. Wow, that's a really great story. We have an amazing gift of God's Word. It's alive, it's exciting, and it actively speaks to each one of us. At Family Camp, we're going to help equip you to walk through a passage with the children in your lives. And we hope that this will encourage you and remind you of the power of God's Word. So Family Camp starts this evening, and it goes on for the next three Sundays. And the exciting thing is we have so many people register that registration is actually full. But if you want to participate virtually, you can do that um, through live stream. And Chad talked a little bit about live stream on our website. You can also um, access the recordings later. But if you want to do that, we would encourage you to stop by the family ministry check-in area and pick up a family ministry box. We put together some really awesome boxes that Tiffany Decker put together for everybody. And um, the kids all get one. They've got some really exciting interactive tools for the kids as you walk through family camp with them. So we hope you guys have a great week.
I imagine that um, many of you know my wife, Hunter. She was the uh, cute blonde in the blue sweatshirt there. And uh, this was a bit of a return to acting for her because when she was younger, she was an aspiring actress. In fact, she was once uh, an extra in a movie starring Michael Douglas. But unfortunately, her scene got cut. But she did say that while on set, she did say something witty that made Michael Douglas laugh. She doesn't remember what it was, but that's her Hollywood story. My name's Hunter, and I made Michael Douglas laugh. That's, I mean, it's pretty good. Speaking of entertainment, two weeks ago was around the 4th of July, and there was a bit of an entertainment vacuum as most townships didn't have their public fireworks as they usually do. But of course, if you live in East Dayton like I do, we've been hearing things that go boom every night since late April. That's just how we roll on my side of town. But for many of us, that entertainment vacuum was filled as the streaming service Disney Plus released the musical Hamilton. Of course, uh, story, telling the story of the founding father on the $10 bill, Alexander Hamilton. But much of the story is told from the perspective of the man who introduces himself as the fool who shot him, Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was born to Aaron Burr Sr., who was the president of the College of New Jersey, what we know of today as Princeton University. And his mother was Esther Edwards, the daughter of the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards. But by the time Aaron Burr was two years old, his father, his mother, and his grandfather Jonathan, who had come to live with him for a time, had all died. So he was orphaned at a very young age. Well, he eventually went on to live with his uncle, and when he grew uh, at age 16, he graduated from the College of New Jersey. And he would go on to become an officer in the Revolutionary War, and after that, practiced law and then got into politics. He eventually became Thomas Jefferson's vice president. But a bit before that, the, the musical lets us in on a bit of a desire that Aaron Burr had, a bit of a, his ambition. You see, he wanted to be more involved in some of the decision-making processes, not so much in these large legislative bodies, but he wanted to be part of these small conversations behind closed doors. Or he wanted to be, as the song goes, in the room where it happens. And the example given in the song was the Compromise of 1790, where Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison got together for a dinner. And the deal was that Alexander Hamilton would get to design the financial system of the nation in exchange for Washington, D.C. becoming the capital of America, much to the convenience of the two Virginians at the table. But Burr points out that no one else was in the room when it happened, and he so longed to be part of that conversation and to have input. And he notices that even though he and Alexander Hamilton came from similar humble origins, it seemed that Hamilton was gaining more influence, and so he himself felt left out in the cold. This is reminiscent of an essay written by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Ring. And in it, he talks about how it's not so much the economic desire or the erotic desire that drives us mainly, but we all, at times in our lives, want to be 
part of this small group, uh, or we want to be what we feel like is on the inside. He says that, I believe that in all men's lives at certain points, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. It is not large lighted rooms or champagne or even scandals about peers and cabinet members that he wants. It is the sacred little attic or studio, the heads bent together, the fog of tobacco smoke, and the delicious knowledge that we, four or five, all huddled beside this stove, are the people who know. He goes on to say that as long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You are trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left. Unless you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. And it seems to me that this desire is based on the fact that ever since humanity's eviction from the Garden of Eden, we have felt like outsiders. And we have been manufacturing ways of feeling like we're on the inside. And we want to go so deep on the inside that we're in this inner ring that insulates us from feeling like we're on the outside. And the more exclusive the club, the better, because if just anyone can get in, then that means that you are just anyone. But if it's exclusive, that means that you're special. And if you can feel like you're special, that'll cover up this sense that you have deep down that something's wrong with you and that you're an outsider. Well, today we'll read a story about a man who, like many of us, probably wanted to be on the inside, but he was a capital O outsider. Perhaps we could compare him to Aaron Burr especially after Aaron Burr's duel with Alexander Hamilton, which forced him to essentially abandon his political career and live in obscurity. As the musical puts it, he becomes the villain in our history. Or perhaps we can compare this man to another figure from the revolutionary era, a man whose name has become synonymous with betraying your people, a man named Benedict Arnold. Or perhaps there's a term that was commonly used in the revolutionary period, a term used by colonists, Tories. Tories were colonists who were loyal to the British crown. But before we get into the passage today, I think it's worth pointing out that what we'll read today in Luke 19 has similar themes running through it that we've already read from Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of a tax collector and a Pharisee, a religious outsider and an insider. And in today's story, we'll also read about an outsider who also happened to work in the tax industry. We then read the story about the little children being brought to Jesus. And today we read a story about a, a little person who does some very childlike things, but by the end of it receives the identity of a child. We also, in 18, read a story about a rich young ruler who wanted to know what he had to do to enter the kingdom of God, and yet walked away sad because he did not want to part with his wealth. But today we'll read a story about a man who got a glimpse of the kingdom of God and was glad to part with his wealth. 
These stories are, of course, about relationship and responsibility. We ended chapter 18 by the story of the blind beggar who wanted to see. And today in our story, we read twice that this man wanted to see who Jesus was. So I'm going to go ahead and invite Terry up to the stage, and she's going to read our passage for us today. And we will be in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Thank you. So Jesus is passing through Jericho, not the old Jericho that was destroyed by Joshua, but a new Jericho, a city full of trade and commerce and business interactions, a city known for its tropical climate and palm trees. And there began to be this great crowd that would gather around him. And this piqued the interest of a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus would have gone and would have joined the crowd to, to see, but the Bible points out that he wouldn't be able to see over them because he was short and was small in stature. And archaeologists today tell us that after studying the skeletal remains of people in this time from this place, that they estimate the average height of a man from this place in time was somewhere between five foot one and five foot five. So Zacchaeus was almost certainly under five feet tall. And so in order to see Jesus, he anticipated the path that Jesus would walk, so he ran ahead of the crowd and did something very childlike. He climbed a tree. I mean, who climbs trees but kids? And so he climbs this sycamore fig tree, not so much the big white sycamores that we have in North America, but a sycamore fig with its branches lower to the ground. And he wanted, you know, he wanted to see Jesus. And we're also told that Zacchaeus was a rich man, which you would think would have given him some status in his city, and perhaps even some deference from the people. Because after all, money usually tends to be this kind of thing that gets you in the inner ring. Money tends to get you in the room where it happens. But it seems that in this case, money overpromised and underdelivered. So why didn't Zacchaeus just go and join the crowd? After all, because in most polite societies, he could have squeezed through the crowd and, you know, perhaps occasionally tapping on a shoulder and saying, excuse me, my good man. 
But as you can see, I am not as vertically privileged as you are. Would it be all right with you if I stood in front of you? And if Zacchaeus had a good name in the town, certainly people would have been like, oh, but of course. Hey, everyone, make way. Our friend, little Zacchaeus, wants to see Jesus. But Zacchaeus knew that this was not an option for him. He would have gone into the crowd and walked away with some bruises, likely. Because the text tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And a number of times already in Luke, we've talked about what it means to be a tax collector and what that would have meant in that society, that these tax collectors were working and collecting taxes for the occupying Roman Empire, the people who were oppressing Israel. So the attitude towards tax collectors was like, what are you doing? Why are you working for them? Why are you working for the oppressors? And we know that you're collecting more than you should, and you're lining your pockets and getting rich from our work. So tax collectors were often lumped into the same category as prostitutes. But Zacchaeus was no mere tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He was higher up in the pyramid scheme with tax collectors working underneath him. And with Jericho being this city of lots of trade, there certainly would have been tolls and customs, and Zacchaeus would have been in charge of all of that. He could have easily become a wealthy man, even if he didn't defraud anyone. But let's call it for what it is. Zacchaeus is not a popular guy. Zacchaeus is like a Benedict Arnold. He's like a Tory. Or to use you know, perhaps a phrase from our culture, Zacchaeus was canceled. In the eyes of the people around him, it's not only the things that he did were bad, that he himself was bad. Zacchaeus was canceled. And so this crowd gathers around Jesus, and you have to wonder what they're thinking, what they're wondering. You know, what's he going to do? What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to come and perform some miracle? Is he going to heal someone? Maybe he'll make us some bread. He's done that type of thing before. Or maybe he'll tell one of his stories and we'll all nod sagely, pretending to understand. But what Jesus goes and does is the last thing that they were expecting. Jesus goes to the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. This is surprising for a number of reasons. The first reason is that Jesus called him by name. Jesus knew his name, and we have no indication that these two had met before. After all, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. But, um, but imagine that you're, you're on the fringes, and suddenly there's a visitor to your town, and he's the most popular guy in town, and he comes up and he says your name. And you've never met him before. It would be very surprising, I'm sure. And I'm, and I'm certain that many of us would love to hear our name come from the lips of Jesus. But it's also surprising, as Jesus says, I must come to your house today. It sounds like Jesus is like inviting himself over. And, and that's not something we do in our culture. And that's not something they did in their culture either. I mean, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. I mean, it's just, no, don't actually do that. But I mean, it's kind of, it'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? But let's think about it. You know, it says, Zacchaeus came down and received him gladly. 
And certainly there would have been others in the crowd in Jericho that day who would have loved to have hosted Jesus. I mean, they're all looking at each other going, did you sweep your house today? Did you sweep your floor? So it seems that, although it seems like Jesus is inviting himself over, it was Zacchaeus was the one who was actually receiving the invitation. I mean, imagine if... my son. You have a little, you have, if you can't see the live stream, small little two-year-old just came right across it and you got to call it out. This is my kid. We're just going to let that go. Um, where was I? Yeah. So imagine, <laughs> imagine that you get a knock on your door and someone says to you, look, Jesus is coming to Dayton. He'll be here in three hours and he wants to stay at your house. Would you feel imposed upon would you feel like, ah, tonight's not a good night. You know, I have dishes in the sink. I had this glorious Netflix binge planned. Or would you say, who am I and what is my house that my Lord should come to stay with me? So on one hand, it seems as if Jesus was inviting himself, but Zacchaeus was the one who was receiving the invitation. And the final surprise is expressed by the crowd. They're grumbling, does this man not know he's gone to be the guest of a sinner? I mean, after all, if this man is the Christ, if he's the Messiah, he's supposed to be the one to liberate us from Rome. What is he doing visiting with someone who's collaborating with Rome? And here we see this crowd's posture towards outsiders. And so what I want to do now is I want us to consider a number of common evangelical postures towards the broader culture. And I want us to do this through the lens of relationship and responsibility. After all, these are things that God built into creation. God made us for relationship, and he gives us the responsibility of representing him, ruling and having dominion. And I'm not saying that all of you here have, at times, adopted these postures. I know I've probably ebbed and flowed between uh, several of these, but I'm sure you'll begin to recognize them. So one of the common postures of evangelicalism towards the broader culture is called fortification. That is, the culture is bad, so we need to form this defensive evangelical bubble, keep the culture out. We need to isolate ourselves, have this kind of bunker mentality. But Jesus said I send you as sheep among wolves. He did not say, I send you as sheep to this cozy barn. The issue with fortification is that it offers no relationship, no good news, and it offers no responsibility. There's no call to repentance. So let's consider, did Jesus operate out of a posture of fortification? If he did, what's he doing hanging out with Zacchaeus? If he did... What's he doing going into these dinner parties with tax collectors and prostitutes in your garden variety center? If he did, what's he doing at a well having a conversation with a divorced Samaritan woman? Clearly, Jesus did not adopt a posture of fortification, this bubble mentality. The next posture we could call domination. Unlike fortification that seeks withdrawal, domination seeks a head-on collision with culture in order to conquer it, 
It's the culture warrior mentality. Like we got to, you know, we got to take the culture back and become the majority. And we got to, you know, impose our rules upon people. Make people live as if they are Christians, even though they aren't Christians. And if you're successful, you end up with this nominal form of Christendom. Ask Europe how that works out. One of the reasons for the decline of faith in Europe is because for centuries the church and the state have worked together to dominate with coercive force. And what you get inevitably is backlash. And I'm not saying that the church should disengage from politics. And I'm not saying that the church should not support laws that are just and good for human flourishing. But I think we need to be very careful to not adopt a view of our neighbor that they are an enemy to be defeated instead of an image bearer to be loved. We can't have our main goal to be to win arguments instead of winning hearts and imaginations. Sure, make your argument be both as shrewd as snakes, but also be innocent as doves. So the problem with the domination posture is that it's all responsibility but no relationship. We want the culture to be responsible, to fall in line, and to join our view of things, but we offer no relationship. There's, it's all challenge, but no invitation. And so did Jesus operate out of a posture of domination? Zacchaeus, get yourself out of that tree. I'm going to drag you to your house, tell you everything wrong with your life, and we're going to straighten you out, boy. I don't think so. But the final posture is an overcorrection of domination. This pendulum swings so far, you end up in the ditch on the other side of the road. And that is with accommodation. Accommodation is when Christians just end up in the stream of culture and lose what makes them distinct. It's our message becomes so watered down that it no longer offends anyone. This is when we affirm things that God does not affirm. And so we lose our message, we lose our distinctiveness, we lose our prophetic edge. And so the issue with accommodation is that it's all relationship, but no responsibility. It's all invitation, but no challenge. Did Jesus operate out of a posture of accommodation? Did he go to these dinner parties of sinners and say, hey, I got a message for you guys. Just be yourselves. Did he say to the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, Hey, girl, don't let those Pharisees bother you. Be true to yourself. Believe in your dreams. You're all right. And he said to her, Listen, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. So what was Jesus' posture toward outsiders? Well, we read in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus became a human child, and, but he was also called the Son of the Most High. He was fully human, fully divine. The Gospel of John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. For centuries, Christians have called this incarnation. His posture was incarnation. This is in spite of the fact that he, would, he knows everything that we have done and everything that we will do. He knows every thought and inclination of our hearts. He chose to move into the neighborhood anyway and establish a faithful presence among us. 
to associate with us, to identify with us, to be tempted in every way that we are tempted and yet be without sin. And so Jesus associates with this outsider, Zacchaeus. And we see again this, this principle we've seen before in the Gospel of Luke. In those days, whenever something that was ritually clean would come into contact with what was considered unclean, the clean thing would become contaminated. But that's not how it works with Jesus. Whenever Jesus comes into contact with the unclean, Jesus does not become contaminated. The unclean things become purified. So when Jesus comes into contact with leprosy, the leprosy doesn't affect Jesus. Jesus cleanses the leprosy. Whenever Jesus comes into contact with a dead body, the dead body does not contaminate Jesus. The dead body comes alive. It, it becomes cleansed, purified. And here again, with this encounter with Zacchaeus, who certainly would have been considered unclean due to his frequent contact with Gentiles, it is not Zacchaeus that contaminates Jesus. It is Jesus that purifies Zacchaeus. And this is very appropriate because Zacchaeus' name means one who is pure, one who is clean, one who is righteous. This must have been terribly ironic to the people who knew him from before. But finally, because of this encounter with Jesus, he is able to embrace this identity as one who is pure. But we remember that Jesus' mode of operation in making disciples is relationship and responsibility. This is, this is how God created us. And this is how Jesus made disciples. And this is how we are called to make disciples. Relationship and responsibility. The same Jesus who said, Come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest is the same Jesus who says, Anyone who comes after me should take up his cross and follow me. So we often think of salvation in terms of what we are saved from. Sin, death, hell, separation, being an outsider in the eyes of God. And we also think of things in terms of what we are saved to. We're saved to a relationship with Jesus. We're saved to being adopted to this family. But how often do we consider what we are saved for? We're saved to relationship for responsibility for making disciples, for the life and flourishing of the world. So we've looked at the common evangelical posture towards outsiders, and we've looked at Jesus' posture towards outsiders, but now I want to consider the effect that Jesus has on outsiders, or how Jesus changes an outsider from the inside out. I don't think that Luke is giving us a full transcript of everything that was said and done between Jesus and Zacchaeus that day. After all, we were not in the room where it happened, but Zacchaeus was. He was finally in on the only inner ring that matters, next to Jesus. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 that the time has arrived, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is breaking into this world. Change your way of thinking and walk in light of that change. 
And so here in this moment, Zacchaeus is experiencing the kingdom of God breaking into his life. And things are going on inside of him. And he's reflecting and he's considering like, look, I'm just experiencing such radical invitation, radical relationship. I'm experiencing love and grace. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. I've built my entire life on money, but money has overpromised and underdelivered. So once I know what this is about, money is, well, it's, it's just money. So he feels compelled to respond. Not out of duty, but out of an overflow of joy because of the grace that he has received in his life. And he feels like it, it's, it's going to burst out of him. And so he, he comes up with a plan. He says, look, Lord. I mean, who says look? That's, that's what kids say. Look, Mommy. Look, Daddy. Look at what I'm about to do. Look, Lord. Half of my possessions I give away to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I will repay them four times as much. He's going way beyond what the law demands of him. The kingdom of God broke into Zacchaeus' life, and the only response for him was to repent and believe, to change his way of thinking, the way he saw himself, the way he saw God, the way he saw his money, and to believe. And belief here is not mere cognitive agreement with a proposition. It's faith with legs. It's functional faith. My wife and I recently visited Niagara Falls. And of course, we can't get into Canada these days, so we had to stay on the New York side. But we had a wonderful time. And inevitably, you're, when you're up there, you're going to learn about the history of the place, the interesting people who went over the falls in wooden barrels. But also, you learn about a French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. Now, Blondin didn't tightrope across the falls themselves, but he walked across the Niagara River Gorge about a stone's throw away from the falls. He's, we're talking about 160 feet in the air above the river, about 1,000 feet of rope. And this was the 1850s, and so he's crossing forward and backwards, blindfolded. There's even a story that he cooks an omelet on the middle of the tightrope. Okay, got to take a snack for the trip, I guess. But there's also a story, and no one knows whether it's authentic or not. This could be apocryphal, but preachers love it, and I'm sure you've heard it before. There's a point where Blondin supposedly takes a wheelbarrow, a wheelbarrow, and walks it across the tightrope. And when he gets to the other side, you know, there's a crowd there, and they're whipped into a frenzy. They're cheering as loud as the falls are roaring. And he gets them quiet and he says, who here believes I can take a person in this wheelbarrow across the tightrope? And they all say, yes, we believe, we believe you are the greatest tightrope walker in the world. Imagine what his next question is. So who's getting into the barrel? Silence. There's a faith that says, we believe, we believe, and there's a faith that gets into the wheelbarrow. 
And Zacchaeus recognized that I've experienced something so intense today that I'm not satisfied just to sit back and say, well, that was lovely. He got into the, he got into the wheelbarrow. His response in giving away his money is him walking out the change that was made inside of him. And so Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house today. Now Jesus is not saying, oh, you're ready to give some money? Okay, you can be saved. You just bought yourself a truckload of salvation, buddy. But no, Jesus is pointing out the evidence of this external manifestation of an internal reality. He's saying it's as if there was a seed planted and it's begun to take root. And we know that's the case because a plant has shot up and it's begun to become fruitful. And let's not overlook this. Let's not overlook how profound this is because just a chapter earlier, Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, what's happening in chapter 19? A rich man's entering the kingdom of God. It's because Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible for God. Zacchaeus' repentance is just as earth-shattering as a blind man receiving his sight. That any of us would repent today and turn to Jesus is a miracle. But Jesus goes on to say, salvation has entered this house, for he too is a son of Abraham. This is not Jesus commenting on Zacchaeus' genealogy or his, his bloodline or his, you know, that the fact that he's Jewish. Because the New Testament says it is those who are of the faith who are children of Abraham. And Abraham was a man who received a relationship from God, received an identity from God, and began to walk in obedience out of that relational identity. And now Zacchaeus has gone and done the same and now bears a family resemblance. And Jesus finishes by in this last encounter that he has before entering Jerusalem to complete his mission, Jesus summarizes his entire mission by saying, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what this whole thing has been all about. The Son of Man came coming to seek and to save lost people, outsiders, people like you and me, And so it was Zacchaeus who climbed the tree seeking Jesus, but it turns out it was Jesus doing the seeking all along. It's as if when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today, it's almost as if he's saying, you are the reason I came to Jericho. And so how does this seeker save us? Well, Jesus saves us because even though he was the ultimate insider, he became an outsider so that outsiders could get inside. Jesus became canceled so that we could get in on God's inner ring, seated with him in the heavenly places in the room where it happens. Zacchaeus went to his tree seeking Jesus. Jesus went to his tree seeking us. He went to his tree as our substitute, carrying our sin, as our representative. 
dying as our representative so that we could live representing him. So how will you respond to the message of this Savior who seeks and saves the lost? I mean, Zacchaeus had his way of responding, and he responded extravagantly just because Jesus came to his house one day. Zacchaeus had no idea that Jesus would die for him. How much more should we be willing to respond when we have the advantage of knowing the rest of the story? The extent of grace, the extent of his extravagant love to bring in outsiders, how much more should we be willing to respond? How much more should we be willing to repent and believe as the kingdom of God collides with our world? So how will you respond? Because Zacchaeus had his way of responding because he had a change he needed in his life. Does anyone here have an area of change that you need in your life? Some of you. Some of us have perfected the Christian life. That's awesome. You can teach us. We have a lot to learn from you guys. We all have places in our lives, areas where we need change. And, you know, so Zacchaeus, he was intentional about it. He came up with a plan. He got specific. He put numbers to it. So what will you do to make a change? What, what have you been sensing as, a, as an area in your life that you needed to change that maybe you haven't sat down to become intentional with? You know, like Zacchaeus, it was financial. So maybe, maybe some of us need to go back to our budgets and ask ourselves, where in this are kingdom values reflected? Or perhaps the stress of the pandemic has affected the way you've been parenting and you've been operating more out of law than out of gospel. You've been emphasizing more the responsibility of your children to obey more than you've been investing in the relationship. Perhaps some of us are convicted about the way that we use social media, and we might need to look at the things like fortification, domination, and accommodation, and we need to up either relationship or responsibility. Or maybe we sense that God has been saying something to us about finding creative ways to connect with our neighbors. I don't know what it is for you, but you know the change that you've been called to make. So it's time to make a plan. But before that, maybe what you need to do first is to invest in your relationship with Jesus. Just as Jesus came to Zacchaeus saying, I must stay at your house today, maybe Jesus is saying to some of you, I must invite myself into your schedule this week. And I'm not, I mean, look, if you do the 30 minutes or 60 minutes of Bible reading and devotions every day, that's great, that's awesome. But what I'm talking about is maybe a date with Jesus, a time to hang out intentionally with Jesus. And allow him to speak to you about his love for you, his grace for you, what he did to seek you and find you. The fact that he knows your name, he knows your successes, he knows your failures, and that he's not ashamed of you. And he'll speak to you about what he has saved you from, what he has saved you to. But then let Jesus talk to you about what he saved you for. And the responsibility he wants to give you to represent him. 
and the specific change you need to make in your life and then join him and come up with a plan. So what might this kind of day look like? You know, I mean, find something you enjoy doing and invite Jesus along. Maybe it's a walk in the woods. Maybe you go fishing with Jesus. That usually turns out pretty well. You know, just cast on the other side. Maybe you go to the driving range with Jesus. Maybe you find a quiet corner in the coffee shop with Jesus. Maybe you go to a donut shop. We have one good donut shop around here, Williams Donuts. It's one of the most popular donut shops in the country. And maybe you order two donuts, one for you and one for Jesus. Usually he'll end up giving his to you. He's, he's generous like that. But find time to spend time with Jesus and allow him to speak into your life. So maybe it looks like this. This isn't anyone's in particular, but maybe someone, they say to themselves, you know, I'm going to go walk at Hills and Dales because I think God wants to say something to me about reinstituting family devotions around the dinner table. And as he talks to me about that, maybe I need to come up with a plan. I need to decide, okay, which children's Bible? And I'm going to use the picture, mirror, and window questions. Who is God? Who am I? How do I get to live? And I'll ask my kids, what's God saying to you, and what are you going to do about it? And I know that my kids are going to half pay attention. They're going to interrupt, and they're going to throw macaroni and cheese across the room. But I am called to this. So what are you going to do? to spend time with Jesus this week and let him speak into your life. But in the meantime, we're going to pray and the band will come up and we'll continue singing to this Savior who seeks and saves the lost. Our Father, we recognize there was a time where we were all outsiders longing to be on the inside and you have done what it takes to bring us on the inside. And God, we recognize defects in ourselves where sometimes we'll look at outsiders and we won't think of them the way that you think of them. So Lord, we ask for your grace and we ask that you would grow us in that. And God, we ask that you would help us, that you would speak clearly to us about the changes we need to make in our lives. And to not do so out of duty and out of mere willpower, but through the power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit, and through the grace that you have instilled in us. We thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.